want us to read here the 112th Psalm. And I want you to hear how this psalmist describes the blessings upon the Lord's righteous. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. These are the words of the Lord. Now, the psalmist here is praising the Lord for the blessings that are upon the righteous, those who delight in the Lord, those who have the fear of the Lord. And he's also extolling the many virtues of that person who is blessed of the Lord. Listen to what he says of the blessings of God on the righteous. He speaks of the might of his descendants, of the wealth and riches that fill his home, of his path being illuminated, of him being like a solid rock, immovable, his name being remembered forever. Speaks of his triumph over his his enemies, of his horn being exalted in honor, and his righteousness enduring forever, which is eternal life. And then, look at the many virtues that he lists here. His fear of the Lord, his delighting in God's commands, his graciousness, mercy, and righteousness, his bountiful generosity, his uprightness in all of his dealings, and his fearlessness and unwavering trust in the Lord. How many of you would agree with me that this psalm is expressing something that every single one of us would want to see manifested in our day-to-day life? These blessings of the Lord that he promises belong to those who are righteous. But is this always true? Do, Do we have these things because of righteousness? And it's a question we've explored, you know, throughout all of our journey here through Proverbs And we're going to explore that in a little bit more detail today. Uh, We are moving now into this aspect of looking at these general themes that emerge in Proverbs. We can no longer go verse by verse uh, through Proverbs. It would be, it's challenging and difficult, right? So we're going to be categorizing themes together. But today specifically, we're going to be looking at the themes that emerge concerning wealth and riches and these kind of blessings upon the righteous that are described there in the 112th Psalm. Now, what I want to do before we dive in there is just review the five principles that I shared last week on how to read Proverbs. They are indispensable. Always keep this in the forefront of your mind, in your study. Maybe as you're going through Proverbs, if you have one of the scripture journals, maybe write them somewhere where you can refer to them all the time. So as you read an individual proverb, you keep these five principles in mind. Okay? The first that we said is to keep in mind the structure of proverb. And that is to keep the two paths in mind. The two paths. Super important that you never forget that what Solomon is instructing his son in, because this is who it's written to, is that there are two paths before him. Right? There's wisdom and then there's folly. There's lady wisdom and there is woman folly. There is the wise person, there's the foolish person, there's the righteous person, there's the wicked person, there's good, there's evil. Those two paths need to always be kept in mind. And you'll see those two paths contrasted time and time again. You'll see it in the individual Proverbs that we go through today. The second principle was that no proverb is exhaustive. These are short, right, concise wisdom sayings. So they concentrate truth. And, and, and that truth 
isn't everything there is to say about the topic. So we don't want to take, just pull a proverb out and, and just develop a whole theology around an individual proverb. No, we need to take the whole counsel of God's word concerning that topic in mind. We need to look at, at all of the proverbs. We need to see what all of the Old Testament says, the New Testament, the whole counsel of God's word. So we understand that truth in greater detail. The third is that proverbs are general promises. These are, in essence, general commentaries that Solomon is making as he observes the world. This is the world as it is. This is how the world works, but it's not absolute. We don't take these things that are expressed as promises. Sometimes they do work out that way. Other times they don't. They're not absolute, unconditional promises. But we do know this, though they may generally be true now, they will ultimately be true later. All right? So we keep that in mind as we read Proverbs. The fourth, very important, is to remember that Christ is the fulfillment of the wisdom. It's the wisdom of God. He is wisdom from God. He is the full revelation of, of wisdom. And in Christ, all of these promises to the righteous have been fulfilled. Right? So when these promises are made to the righteous, they're, they're true in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he has made them righteous. Right? He's the perfect, obedient son who fulfilled everything that we read in Proverbs. And he's obtained these blessings for us. And fifthly, we need to remember the gospel as we go through this. We don't read the gospels with the understanding that these are the things I need to do to be made righteous. No. Because we're already righteous, right, then we can live these things out. We see these things and we look at the Proverbs, in essence, as, 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 a, as a book of sanctification. We are already the righteous redeemed of the Lord. I don't do them to gain the favor of the Lord, the love of God, or acceptance from God. I already have that, right? So we remember that as we read Proverbs. This is an, a, a cause and effect thing. Well, if I do this, then God favors me. No, no. If you're in Christ, you're already favored. If you're in Christ, you're already loved more than you'll ever be loved by God. Do not forget the gospel truths as you read Proverbs. Now, let's talk about this aspect of wealth. The general attitude of Proverbs concerning riches and wealth and prosperity is that money is seen as something positive. It's not really seen in the negative. And you'll get that sense as we go through the Proverbs today, but I hope you saw that just in that in that 112th Psalm. That's a wisdom Psalm. That's wisdom literature, right? We're seeing this aspect here that God is not opposed to giving his people wealth. And for some of us, that might make us uncomfortable. Wait, that, that's kind of weird. We've talked a lot about the prosperity gospel and against it. What are you saying here now? Well, stick with me here. When we read the Old Testament promises, they are filled with this language about God prospering his people. What does that prosperity look like? What does wealth look like? And we need to read this remembering the context of whom this was written to. This is the, it's an ancient people. Their culture, their society, their economy was vastly different than ours. Their world was so different than ours, right? For, for them, it was a society built on the exchange of goods and services, Okay, and, and, and things like exchanging you know, sheep and cattle and precious metals and milk and honey and all sorts of different products and goods and services. They were exchanged as, as part of the economic survival of a people. They, they didn't have paper currency. They didn't have coins. Uh, these are things that emerge much later uh, in, in Old Testament history. But at this time, those things didn't exist. There was no exchange of of, of, of money as you and I know it for these items. So wealth for them was something really different. It, 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 was, it was having an abundance of sheep and, and cattle and milk and honey or, or different types of precious metals that can be exchanged for other things. For them, wealth wasn't as we think about it. Fat bank accounts, maxed out 401ks, right, a, a, just a, a stellar investment portfolio, right? We see wealth in a, in a vastly different way than wealth was understood in these first century times. So we need to have that perspective in mind as we read all of these things concerning wealth here. And Proverbs has a lot to say about money. 
lot to say about riches there. And so we need this wisdom perspective. I think in my, in my own spiritual life, looking at the decades of, of walking with the Lord, I have seen these, these two extremes play themselves out uh, just in my own spiritual walk with the Lord. I mean, there would be a time where I would have seen uh, money and possessions and stuff in a very negative light as something to, that I should not have a whole lot of because I had to be so cautious about it, it, it leading me off into idolatry or leading me away from the Lord. It was that whole mindset here that poverty kind of equated to godliness or holiness some of you may believe that or have walked in those ways before and then there was the other extreme right the prosperity gospel right looking at at extreme wealth and riches and material possessions and things uh as as signs of god's approval and favor right so so having the stuff meant that that was the blessing of the lord Those are two extremes that are really not what Proverbs here or the Bible is advocating. We need wisdom perspective here. Now, one thing to take note of as we go through this is to understand that that, um, when it speaks of the righteous being blessed and, and of wealth, it doesn't mean that the poor are not righteous or the poor cannot be righteous. It's interesting here that on the path of wisdom and the path of folly, we find rich and poor. There are poor people who can be wise and rich people who can be fools. There are poor people who can be fools and rich people who can be wise. They are found on both paths. However, true and enduring wealth can only be found on the path of wisdom and righteousness, which is the path of life. All right? So let's unpack a few of these things. Like I said, a ton of scriptures and it's really the only way I know how to do this is to survey uh, these themes throughout Proverbs and look at a lot of the different Proverbs here. So uh, it's a lot, all right? So you don't have to write them down. They're all in the sermon notes there for you to follow later. The first theme I want us to see is that the Lord blesses the righteous with wealth. Look at these three Proverbs, ten six. Blessings are on the head of the righteous, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Proverbs 10.22, the blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. And 15.6, in the house of the righteous, there is much treasure, but trouble befalls the income of the wicked. Proverbs makes it clear that it is the Lord who makes the righteous rich. That he does bless his people with material gain. That, that's what Proverbs asserts. We, we can't deny that. It's, it's showing us quite clearly that, that God blesses his people this way materially. It's not just spiritual blessings. There are material blessings in view here. In fact, the first words in Proverbs concerning wealth express that it is a reward for those who honor the Lord. Proverbs chapter 3, 9 through 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Notice what the goal of wealth is in that. It's to honor the Lord. That's the goal of the wealth in view here. The goal isn't, you know, uh, bursting vats and barns filled with all sorts of stuff, right? It's not the wealth. It's not the riches. The goal, the aim is the Lord. It's the honor and the glory of the Lord. And those first fruits, right? The first fruits was the offerings, the tithes and offerings that were presented by the people of God in the temple. Now, remember our reading principles, right? We read this, honor the Lord, and here's the reward from it, right? Generally true. Ultimately, yes, all of this will come to pass, but in the moment, right, it plays itself out different in our world, doesn't it? And the person of wisdom, as we talked about last week, knows the right time, the right season, the right moment, the right circumstances to apply knowledge and insight and understanding and discernment. And generally, these are the things that are the outcomes of that, right? Uh, But this cannot be seen as a formula for success. I don't care what Kenneth Copeland says or Joel Osteen or any of the other prosperity dudes or dudettes. Right? There's not that now. But I don't want you to miss here the connection being drawn about this relationship between spiritual values and one's wealth. 
There is, I believe, an expectation the people of God should have. That God blesses his people. And that blessing includes stuff at times. Not always the way we want to see it, but there are blessings in view. We don't always understand how they're going to work out in our life, but we know it's not a formula. Just because you give doesn't mean you're going to receive, right? Sow that $1,000 and there's that hundredfold return. That's garbage. You can categorically reject that. Okay? But don't mistake this reality here that God blesses his people. We're going to talk about generosity and giving here in a, in, in, in a short uh, few moments here, but don't miss this here. Because I think sometimes there is a hesitation on our part in believing that God wants to do these things for us. I, I know I struggle with that. I, I, I struggle in that tension, tension of where I've been before and what I used to believe and, and the outcome of that and all of the kookiness and garbage that I lived through and walk through, and the excess, and the abuses, and all of those things, that I tend to just kind of shrink back from these things, and just kind of, oh, I hope hope God blesses. No, he does. He, He actually does. And he's the source of enduring wealth, and it says here, he gives that to the righteous. He blesses the righteous with that. So I want us to have a blessing mentality, all right? Not a poverty mentality, a blessing mentality, that we understand God cares for his people, and he blesses his people. He blesses the righteous, not of our own righteousness, but because of Christ's, okay? The second, the promise of wealth is attached to the one who finds wisdom. This is another thing that Proverbs asserts quite clearly. Wisdom rewards those who seek after her, who love and treasure her. We looked at Proverbs 3, 13, and 16 several weeks back. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, and in her left hand are riches and honor. That's, that's, that's what wisdom does. Proverbs eight eighteen through 21. Riches and honor are with me. This is wisdom's speech. Enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield and choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. How's that for a promise? For those who seek wisdom, who love wisdom, who embrace wisdom, right? You recall how... Solomon was asked by the Lord in a dream to ask for anything, and the Lord would do it for him. And what did he ask for? He asked for wisdom. He asked for wisdom in being able to govern God's people and rule over God's people with justice and and righteousness. And God is pleased that, that he asked for wisdom, and he's so pleased that, what does he do? He gives him the things that he didn't ask for. An unimaginable wealth and riches and gold and, and jewels and all things beyond imagination here. So when we look at how wisdom is expressed here in Proverbs, we see that that wealth is a consequence of those who choose wisdom's way and walk in wisdom's path. That's what Proverbs asserts. Generally, that's true. When we start looking at in the coming week uh, weeks of regarding how how wealth in terms of investments and saving and what we do with our money, we see generally that's true. God rewards those who walk in wisdom, right? The third thing, we must be careful not to trust in our wealth, right? This is, this is an important aspect here. Riches and wealth cannot save you, cannot deliver you. Look at these three Proverbs. Proverbs eleven four: riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Proverbs eleven seven: when the wicked dies, his hope will perish, and the expectation of wealth perishes too. Proverbs 11.28, whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Whoever trusts in his or her own wealth is a fool. Thus saith the Lord. That's what he's saying here. There are some advantages to wealth. We, we, We read a proverb last week. We'll see it a few times in Proverbs that that riches are... Uh, a rich man's you know, stronghold, a strong city, right? 
There are some advantages to wealth and riches, riches in this life. But it will be of no avail to you for the things that are of ultimate importance in life. Doesn't hold for it. In here it's telling us when the wicked dies, his hope will perish. So if his hope is in his wealth, when he perishes, so will the expectation he had of his wealth. And then there's the day of wrath. There's the day of judgment. The rich man cannot stand on that day trusting in his riches, in his wealth, in his stuff, and expect a return, right? Expect here uh, the, the reward of the righteous on that day. No, that reward is exclusively for those who've trusted in Christ's righteousness. They are the ones who will be delivered from death. But the rich man will not profit. Riches do not profit on that particular day. Think about the parable of the rich young ruler. You know, well, it's not a parable. Actually, it's an event that happened there in Luke chapter 18. Right? The ruler came to Christ and asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? What are the things that I need to do to get those things? Now, later on, we're told he was extremely wealthy, extremely rich. What does Jesus tell him? Well, in, in order to get the kingdom of God, do the commandments, do all those things. And then you'll have treasures in heaven. You'll get the kingdom. He didn't like that answer. Because he says, look, I've done all these things. And, and Jesus says, well, here's one thing you haven't done. Your stuff, your possessions, the things you're trusting in, go sell all those things. Give it to the poor, distribute it. What does it tell us there in Luke 18, 23 to 27? When he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus, seeing that he become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier to go, uh, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? Right? Like if the rich can't be saved... Like, they've got all the stuff that, that shows, right, that, you know, maybe God's blessings in favor. But who can be saved? And Jesus responded, uh, what is impossible with man is possible with God. You think about this man. He traded the, the temporal for the eternal. He valued his earthly treasure more than he valued the kingdom of God. And here he's saying, man, I've kept all those commandments from my youth. I've been a good Christian boy. I've given my offerings. I've, I've obeyed my, my mother and father. I've, I've done all those things. Now, he thinks he's done it perfectly. We know he's not, right? But he's trusting in his riches. He's trusting in his own righteousness here. And, and there for us is, is an un, a principle we need to grasp here about the danger. It is when you have a lot of stuff. You're tempted to think that everything's okay. You're tempted to think that you're okay. That is what it is with those who trust in riches. Jesus says that's why it's hard for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. Because one begins to trust in those things. And doesn't need to trust in Christ and depend on God. Now we're cautioned many times in scripture about the trap of wealth. Because our earthly treasures can be like an anchor, you know, weighing our heart down, tethering it here to earthly matters, earthly affairs, the accumulation of earthly treasures, and not where we need to be laying up treasures, which is in heaven. But it's not wrong to possess stuff. We see that here in Proverbs. But it is wrong for our stuff to possess us. That is the problem. That's the danger. And it's a, it's a snare that is so easy to fall into. Jesus made it clear that our heart follows our treasure. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart. Treasure, heart. Treasure, heart. Like your heart, you know, is like that little puppy chasing you around. Wherever you, you, whatever you treasure, whatever you value, your heart is there. Right? And that's why we have to lay up treasures for ourselves in heaven. Look, Paul warns of the heart that desires riches in 1 Timothy chapter 6, 9 through 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. 
It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. What a sobering warning that is for us there, right? Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. It's a trap. It's a snare that many senseless, right? What is that? We know we've seen that word, right? Someone who lacks sense, someone who lacks wisdom, someone who lacks discretion, someone who lacks discernment, right? And harmful desires. Where do those emanate from? The heart. The heart. We're tempted and ensnared by the things that we crave and desire in our heart. So if our craving is for riches, watch out. Watch out. Many have fallen away from the faith because of their lust for material possession and worldly treasures. The fourth theme I think that we can see here in Proverbs is that wealth has its limitations and troubles. Look at Proverbs 13.8, an interesting one here. But it says, the ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but a poor man hears no threat or bears no threat. If you're wealthy, you may be targeted by kidnappers, right? If you're a person of means and resources and money, you can become a target for those who want to kidnap you and ask a ransom of your life. And if you're rich, you may be able to pay that, right? And you may be able to uh, escape and evade your kidnappers here. Uh, But the poor, they don't ever have to worry about that. (laughs) They don't have anything, right? They're they're not going to be the target of kidnappers here. They don't need to worry about that. Now, we can fall into the trap sometimes of envying People who have a lot of stuff, people who are rich, who are wealthy in the way we understand it. We think they have it easier. We think they have it better. And in some cases, they do. Again, wealth has advantages in life over poverty. We know that. However, that doesn't mean that they don't have troubles. In fact, they have troubles that those who don't have those things will never have to worry about. They have things that, uh, concerns and, and, and things that, that they have to deal with that those who are poor don't even have to engage in. Generally, more money and stuff means more trouble, all right? And that's just a general observation from Solomon about life. Not always true, but generally true. Proverbs 14.20, the poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. Now, if you have lots of money, you have lots of friends. That's, that's what Solomon is saying here. And that's kind of true, isn't it? But what's the problem with that? The rich might, might know who his true friends are. Maybe surrounded by a lot of people, but are these authentic, genuine friends who love and like him for who he is, or do they like that they have access to the stuff? Right? And when that stuff is gone, are those true friends, are they going to be sticking around? Well, the poor person, it says here, may be disliked even by his neighbor. Why? Because he has nothing to offer. But the reality is the poor person, they have a friend. More than likely, it's an authentic friend. There's nothing to gain there in that relationship, right? There are, there's no things here. Um, and, and these, again, there's, there's limitations and troubles that wealth brings. You know, I, I know, you know people have dreams of you know, winning the lottery, you know, when the mega millions and the Powerball gets up to these hundreds of millions of dollars. People get into a frenzy thinking they have better odds at that time. I don't know why, but, but wow, if I, you know, have you ever had that, you know, where you thought about, man, if I won the lottery, what could I do with that? Right? But we all know stories of people who have struck it rich with the lottery. Overnight, they become multimillionaires, and it destroys their life. Destroys their life, Right? The regret and trouble that that kind of wealth brings into their lives. Destroyed marriages, destroyed families, destroyed relationships. Most of those people blow through that money so fast because they don't know how to handle wealth because it's come too quickly, and Proverbs warns us of that. You know, uh, I, I, was, I read an article not long ago of uh, a, a, a man who, who, I forget how much he won. It was like 20 or $30 million dollars. And his brother hired a hitman to assassinate him so that he could inherit his money. How's that for trouble, right? right? And so not to envy those kind of things, right? But what we do see here is that riches and wealth do come from the Lord, but we cannot make them ultimate things in our life. We have to be careful. Now, fifth is this. Wisdom is better than wealth. Wisdom is better than wealth. Now, we can all agree that wealth beats poverty. 
Like if you had a choice, wealth or poverty, what would you choose? That's a no-brainer, right? Wealth is not the ultimate thing to pursue in life. In fact, Proverbs tells us that there are things of superior value to riches. Proverbs 16.8, better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. Proverbs 16.16, how much better to get wisdom than gold? To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. Proverbs 28.6, better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his own ways. Notice that Solomon recognizes here that not everyone who is wise will be wealthy. That's just a reality in life. Even though on the one hand, he's saying that the blessings of the Lord are upon the rich and his house is filled with treasures and all this stuff and and God gives wealth and adds no sorrow with it, the reality is not all the wise and godly will be wealthy because there are so many other things that are of more and, and greater importance than money and wealth and material possessions. Proverbs speaks in many, and we're going to look at these in the coming weeks, inner peace is better than riches, loving relationships, peaceful relationships, honesty, a good reputation. All of these things are better than having lots of stuff. They all flow from wisdom. All of those things flow from the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. Now, towards the end of Proverbs, and we're going to study this a little bit down the road here, we have another collection of saying called the words of Agar. And Agar here offers what is the only prayer written and contained in Proverbs. Proverbs 30, uh, verses 7 through 9. Listen to his petition here. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say... Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Now that's a good prayer. That's a really good prayer. Give me neither poverty or riches. Right? Give me enough. Just give me what I need and I will be content. What's the point here? If you're rich, you might make an idol out of your money. You might become puffed up with pride in your self-sufficiency. But if you're poor, then sometimes that leads to a desperation that can lead you to do sinful things to try to have a need met. You might be tempted that way when you're short on money. But he's saying, don't give me either extreme there. Just give me what I need. It's enough to have my daily bread. It's enough to have my needs met. That I can daily just trust in the Lord's provision to take care of these things. Things that God has already said he would do for his people. Now we live in a wealthy nation. We live in a a culture where it's hard because we always want more. The eye never takes in its fill of seeing and desiring and wanting things. And neither does the heart. We're all tempted this way sometimes when we... Look out at our neighbor, right? We look out what that person has and say, I need that too. I have a 65-inch. I need a 75-inch television. Or an 85. I don't even know where they are anymore. But <laughs> may as well buy a movie theater, right? <laughs> you know, itself. Or, you know, my car is five years old. I, you know, they have a new car. I want a new car. Or I need a bigger house. I need more, more, more. It's the temptation of the heart to again lay up treasures for ourselves here on earth because we have in a temporal perspective on wealth and not the eternal one here, right? And we have to be careful here. So, so we need to learn what he says here about this middle ground of contentment because that's kind of what he's praying about here. That whatever situation I'm in concerning whether I have enough or I don't have enough or I have too much stuff or I don't have enough stuff, I need to be content, the same thing Paul, we find him saying here, and just, that he's discovered the secret to contentment, right? And, and, and we read about that in Philippians chapter 4. That he says, I've learned to be content with much, and I've, I've learned to be content with little. Stuff, things, whether I have it or not, 
isn't where I'm going to anchor my contentment and my joy in the Lord. Right? And that's why he would declare this, right? The thing we always quote. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, through him who strengthens me. A scripture that is twisted and taken out of context all the time and used for self-serving purposes. Contrary to what, you know, to what Curry puts on his sneakers and, and has tattooed and all this other stuff, it's not for him to be able to shoot three-pointers. That's not what that scripture is for. So that you can do you know, greater things in this life. That's not what it's about. The power in that statement and that declaration is that even if I were to lose everything in this life, Christ is my strength, I can endure. If I were to lose everything, even if my situation doesn't improve, even if I remain in the valley of the shadow of death, Christ is my strength. I will not fail and I will not fall. Right? My contentment is anchored in Christ, not in the stuff. My heart is is laying up treasures in heaven and not here on earth. All right? So we can rejoice in the Lord always. Now, what are we to do with our wealth? What are we to do with that? Well, ultimately, we're going to talk about all these things in the coming weeks, but we can earn it, we can work hard for it, we can receive it as a blessing from the Lord, we can spend it, we can invest it, and we can give it, and all of that's to be done to the glory of God, right? With the wealth He gives us, with the resource He gives us, with, with the money he, he, he places into our hands to steward, we're to do all of those things. But today, I just want to focus, you know, in this last portion of the message here on one of the clear things we're to do with whatever resources the Lord gives us, and that is to be a generous people. Generosity. The righteous live life with open hands of generosity, not with tight fists around their stuff. That's how the righteous live. Now, we already saw in Proverbs chapter 3, 9, and 10, now, we're to honor the Lord with our offerings, with our giving, with our, with our tithes. That is a portion of what the people of God do. We're generous with recognizing that whatever the Lord places into my hands has come from Him. So I give it freely. I give it liberally. Now, it's not going to be a message on tithing and offering and giving, you know. I believe what the New Testament teaches concerning grace giving. I see the tithe as a floor, not the principle that is the New Testament principle. The New Testament talks about generous, sacrificial giving over and above, right? There is no limit. There is no floor, just 10%, right? Now, we know Paul's instruction in 2 Corinthians. What did he say? Don't give out a compulsion. Unfortunately, a lot of people take that to mean don't give at all, Right? Uh, you're, you're to give what, what's purposed in your heart, and some people, because giving is not easy for them, take that to mean I don't have to give. But that's not what the Scripture teaches at all. In fact, we can't read all these Proverbs and walk away thinking that offerings and giving and, and generosity is not what the people of God do. It is what the people of God do. And there's a blessing attached to that, right? I'm not going to go down that path right now. We're going to talk about that a little bit later on. But this is critical that we, we see this reality here of honoring the Lord with what we have and, of course, the blessings that come as a result of that. One of the things that is said of the virtuous woman that is emblematic of Lady Wisdom in Proverbs uh, 31.20, it says here, she opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. See that? That is the disposition of the heart of the righteous. Their hands are opened to give, to help, to bless others, right? Especially those who are in need. The righteous are not stingy people. The righteous are not tightwads. The righteous are, 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 are not those who just are just frugal to the point where it's, everything is consumed inward and their hands aren't open to be a blessing to others. In fact, Proverbs does not look favorably on the stingy here. Look at Proverbs 21, 13. Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. Now, that's terrifying, isn't it? You're like, I ain't hearing. There's those around me in need, and it's in my power to, to do good to them and help them. I'm not going to listen to their cry. Well, what he's saying here is there's going to come a point where you're going to need to cry out, and guess what? No one's going to hear you. God's not going to answer you. 
Proverbs 28, 22. A stingy man hastens after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. Right? That's the stingy person, right? Everything is inward to consume, to hoard, right? There's no blessing. There's no giving. There's no helping. And we're going to see in, a, in another passage here that person is impoverishing themselves. No, we are blessed when we are a blessing to others. Proverbs eleven twenty four through 25. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. Now, that is a principle that defies logic, doesn't it? Give, the more you give, the more you receive. The more you bless, and the more your hands are open to help those in need, the more you yourself are enriched. Well, that's just counterintuitive, right, to the world. No, the world says, get, get, you know, take in. That's how you enlarge yourself, enrich yourself. And here, uh, the opposite is true here. Open-handed people get richer and richer, and they do so getting richer in all the ways that matter most, in all the ways that count for eternity. Look at what he says here. One gives freely. The, the idea there is, is of scattering or distributing widely. And the imagery is if someone taking a handful of seeds and just casting it liberally and spreading it everywhere, distributing it freely with no concern about where each individual seed is falling. And that is how the generous person is to live open-handedly, giving without really focusing so much on the recipient of the benevolent action. It's just, it's just a heart disposition of, of wanting to bless others. And the person who scatters like this is enriched. But the one who is not generous will impoverish himself. The tight-fisted person ends up poorer and poorer. Look at these other Proverbs that state the same thing. Proverbs nineteen seventeen: Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Imagine that. Think about what this is saying here. When you give to those who are in need, when you are generous, you are lending to the Lord. As if we could really lend to the Lord, what does the Lord need? But, but it's something that we're trying to understand here. You're lending to the Lord. It's almost like God is in your debt. We know he's not, but, but he's in your debt. And God never defaults on his loans. God always pays what he owes. And he's saying here, those who give to the poor are lending to the Lord. God blesses and rewards them. Proverbs 22, 9. Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. That's the person, right, who's always looking for those who are in need. How can I help? How can I be a blessing? Right? How can I, how can I, how can I enrich others? Right? That's, that's how the righteous are to be here. So many passages passages on generosity here uh, that God's people are to live by. But let's, let's go to the New Testament here because we see this played out in Acts and displayed so beautifully in Acts chapter 4, 32 through 35. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. Now, this is not speaking of some socialist utopia here, okay? It is not prescriptive. This is not a command from the Lord. What we see here is an overflow of the enormous, lavish grace that was received and poured out upon them in Pentecost, when the Spirit came upon them, the, the, the lavish grace of God, the generosity of God in giving His Spirit here. So now the, the church is together and they're looking around, right, with this bountiful eye. Who has a need? Oh, I can help with that need. And all of a sudden, in this type of, of, of fellowship, in this community, they said, you know what? Let's take care of one another. That's what God instructs us to do. And there are some who said, you know what? I've I've got a house over here. I've got a property over here. I've got stuff over here. I don't need. They began to sell it. And then they looked at how can they distribute those things to bless those who are in need. It's a beautiful picture of the grace of God in community. Right? 
Now, a lot of people say, let's get back to the first century church. Well, I don't see anybody doing this, okay? Oh, the first century church. We love the first century. Oh, it's book of Acts. But yeah, well, are you going to do this? Because this is the reality of what they did there. No, it's not prescriptive. We know that. But the aspect of generosity is what should be in the heart of every single follower of Jesus Christ. How can I be a blessing to someone else? Who is it that has a need? And if it's in my power to do it, then let me meet that need. That's what should be happening in the body of Christ. James reminds us of our obligation to one another if we claim to be people of faith. Second chapter of James, look at 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, that passage says a whole lot. But the point here is that people of faith will be distinguished by how they treat their stuff. Are they generous? Is there, is there some substance to their faith that is evidenced by their deeds, by their works? Because the reality is, is what kind of faith do you claim to have if you see your brother or sister in need? Maybe they, they, they lack food, they lack shelter, they lack a very important need in their life, and all you say is, hey, I'm praying for you, I hope everything works out. When it's in your power to meet that need and help your brother and sister, I'd say your faith is poo caca. <laughs> yeah. That's what James says. I'm paraphrasing, of course. We are to provide for the needs of the saints. Look around this room. There may be people in need. This is why we, we stress the importance of fellowship and being connected and being re, in, in relationships and being part of our city groups. And we, we, we're doing everything to do life together where we get to know one another. So when a brother or sister has a need, the body is there. The body is there to meet that need. Because here is where it is to be taken care of. Something that Paul makes clear in many of his passages. If you're not generous, what does that say about your heart? What does it say about your faith? What, what does it say about your allegiance to Christ? Because how tightly we hold to our stuff, how tight-fisted we are with our stuff, says a lot about whether we are actually trusting Christ for eternal riches and if we're actually really laying up treasures for ourselves in heaven. We probably aren't. And that's a bad thing. It's a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous place to be. We are to be generous people. But what is the motivation for that generosity? Why are we to be generous? Other than just saying it's a good thing and other than saying, well, it's good because God's word commands it. So why are we to live open-handed and not stingy and not greedy and not selfish? Here's why. I love how Ray Ortland wrote this. We are swimming every moment in an ocean of divine generosity. Why are we to be generous? Because we are swimming every moment in an ocean of divine generosity. We are to be a generous people because our God is infinitely generous. That's why. That's our motivation. And nowhere else is the lavish generosity of that, that God displayed most greatly as in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Now this is Paul you know, sharing needs, talking about uh, resources that are needed for the church in Jerusalem, talking to the church at Corinth and saying, hey, you guys made a pledge and it's, and it's time. We need this help, right? Your brothers and sisters are in great need. It's time to, to put your faith into action here and give what you have promised, right? And it says here in, in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Christ 
left the riches and glory and splendor of heaven to take upon himself our lowly and poor estate. And what did he do? He humbled himself, God's word says, being obedient to the point of death, even to the cross, so that we who were truly spiritually poor and spiritually bankrupt might become rich in him. You talk about the generosity of God. That's mind-blowing in what is stated here. So Paul gives here this example of Christ's self-sacrifice and generosity as a motivation for them giving to their brothers and sisters to help the church in Jerusalem. And that the believers here, like they're in Corinth, like Christ in his example, should give of themselves for the sake of others. What do we see displayed most in Christ's generosity if not the wisdom of God? We see in Christ's generosity the motivation for our own generosity. Who are we to be tight-fisted when God has been so open-handed with the grace of God? Who are we to withhold from being a blessing to those in need when we who are spiritually impoverished and in spiritual need, God poured out grace upon grace upon grace in our Lord Jesus Christ so that we might become rich. I want you to see in this closing passage the fulfillment of everything promised in Proverbs of how the generous are blessed and enriched by the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 11. The point is this, Paul writes, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. If you're going to be tight-fisted and you're not going to be generous, don't expect much. It's not going to come your way the way you think it is. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work as it is written. And now Paul quotes from the psalm we read at the beginning, Psalm 112. He, speaking of the righteous, has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply And multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. And you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Do you see that? You'll be enriched in every way, as the Proverbs promise. Your righteousness will abound. Your grace will abound to you. There will be riches. There will be supply placed into your hands so that you can be generous and continue to be a blessing to others. It is what God has promised in Christ Jesus. So believe the gospel. Let Christ's example of generosity be the fuel for us to live with open hands. To be a blessing to those in need. And I want us to have eyes to see that around us. Yes, outside, we're always to do that out there, but most importantly, right in here. This is where we're commanded to do it first and foremost. And if we can't do it here, what does that say about our faith, brothers and sisters? Let us be a people who lives with open hands and receive the many blessings of the righteousness of Christ Jesus in our lives.